Hello and welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are glad that you could join us today. And if this, this is your first time, welcome. Uh, welcome to our little corner of the internet when we do our best to share with you the information which we feel is going to be beneficial to you most beneficial in your own journey, in your own path to awakening and self-realization of the being. Now, as we mentioned in the description to today's live stream, as you know, last week we were <clears throat> going on at length for uh, four hours, in fact, about uh, artificial intelligence and the true dawn of artificial intelligence and how AI as a phenomenon existed long before the advent of the computer. In fact, this week we've been spending time uh, writing about it in our, in our upcoming book and in a book format we have to, of course, give more concrete examples and so on. And we were referring to, uh, um, in the book, mechanicity and mechanical devices, mechanical computational devices. And how at the base of all mechanicity, and indeed computers, we know that computers think in ones and zeros, and we talked at length about this last week, the binary duality that nature of computers as, as a binary duality and that fundamental nature of how they think can be reduced even further to the philosophical comp concept of binary determinism. That is to determine what is true and what is not. And really, some of the most fundamental analog devices that human beings uh, created were for this purpose. So for example, we can think of the abacus. Well, the abacus is simple beads strung on rods and an abacus can be used for basic mathematics, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and, um, and some square roots. But an abacus is a device of determination. What is the answer to this mathematics equation? What is the sum of two plus two? Or whatever number that you're working with on the abacus. But we can even turn to more fundamental machines, more basic machines. We might not think of them as machines, but they are devices, and they are purely analog devices. We can think of the sextant. Of course, the sextant came later than the abacus, so let's go further back, something, something more ancient. Let's go to the balance scale. 
scales. Now, what do you use a scale for? What is it? What is its purpose? Well, you you're trying to determine the weight of something. Again, there's that word. You're you are determining a a value, a state of something. And in order to, order to do that, you put that item or that quantity of items on one side of the scale, and on the other side of the scale, you put weights of specific measure. And then when you bring those two into balance, you can determine what the weight, or perhaps physicist, any physicist listening would say, well, we, we, what we're really determining there is the mass, but regardless, it's a deterministic process. And a balance scale is completely analog. But what we know absolutely of a balance scale is that it is also based on duality. It's based on a binary question. Is something greater than or less than or equal to? What is true? Is, is, it, is it greater than? Yes or no? Is it less than? Yes or no? Is it equal to? Yes or no? These are deterministic binary questions. Now, this is actually how our mind thinks. We compare, just like the balance scale. We put two things in a comparison and we determine a value associated with the two things that we are comparing. So we will evaluate something based on weights in our mind. That's exactly how AI works. And we talked about this last week. But of course, in the process of discussing AI and discussing the duality and its, its way of understanding the universe and the way our rational mind understands the universe, questions arose. And the questions became obviously very metaphysical and existential and, and we're breaking the glass ceiling on rational mind and AI and getting into questions of, okay, yeah, but what is, how does the universe actually work? And how does, what does consciousness feel like? And what, what, so what's the other, uh, what are other ways of quote thinking if not with the rational mind? So to, we put that quote in, um, that famous quote by Albert Einstein, we put it in the description of today's live stream. We said, um, or Einstein said, I want to know God's thoughts, the rest are details. And so today we thought, well, <clears throat> why don't we go through an exercise, what some people might call a thought experiment and go through that one aspect of creating a universe, but only one aspect. So ours is going to be obviously a very limited experiment because ultimately we are still working with our own limited capacities. Plus, because this is a visualization, this is a, 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 a experiment of conscious 
imagination and visualization, we are going to be limited in how we can communicate or share in order for our own understanding. That said, because it is an exercise in creative imagination and visualization, we want to try to put ourselves as best we can in the role of a creator, of God. And in this particular case, prior to the existence of anything. And let's see if we can step through that process together. What, what would that look like? How would that even work? Where, where do you even begin? If you want, you can certainly uh, feel free to grab paper and pen. If you have something to draw circles with and straight lines with, that will probably be, be advantageous. However, it is not necessary. If you follow along, we have slides prepared. And we've tried to minimize, um, we tried to keep them simple. There's some explanation on there, but we tried to keep them relatively simple. And we'll sort of walk through it and talk through it as we go through it. But if you want to do this yourself on a piece of paper, you're more than welcome to. We have a few comments. I guess we'll we'll get to them before we begin. The first one, Benjamin says, Hello, Atlas. How are you? Hope you're doing good. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because <laughs> um, as of yesterday, uh, we're not doing all that well. Uh, it seems that after two weeks of pushing ourselves really hard, uh, writing the book, um, you know, right before Easter, we came out of a rounded depression and um, it feels like we're back in it now. So we, it seems like we had two weeks of being free and clear and we uh, perhaps burnt ourselves out in those two weeks in, our, in, a, in an attempt to complete the book by an arbitrary deadline we set ourselves. Um, and we might be suffering and paying the price for it. We'll see. We'll see how the upcoming week uh, goes. We weren't very productive yesterday and we weren't very productive this morning, to be honest. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, this, today's live stream might not be as long, certainly won't be four hours, I don't think, but we'll see how it goes. But thank you for asking. Kamal Manzuki says, mechanical integer, integrator is a good one. Mechanical integrator. I'm not even, we're not even sure if we know what a mechanical integrator is. <laughs> you'll have to, you'll have to explain that one at some point. And Benjamin says, uh, also the slide rule. Yes, well, the slide rule is actually man's first calculator, really. Um, it's something that I'm sure at some point, some teacher uh, uh, in high school or, you know, but it was never sanctioned part of the curriculum. So 
um, it was never something we had to learn. I think one of our teachers just just wanted to show it to us or, or you know, wanted to show us how it worked. Uh, I don't think I could use it today. I don't think I remember how to do it. But math was never my strong suit. I don't really have a, a mathematical mind for really complex mathematics. Simple mathematics, fine. But the whole calculus and algebra stuff. But it was always under pressure that I couldn't do math. Uh, it was always in the examination things. It was all the little mistakes that I made um, when under pressure. And, you know, you're doing these complex calculations and you're, you're under time limit and pressure. And, and of course, I was struggling with fear and anxiety and all that kind of stuff in high school. So I would always make these little mistakes and the little mistakes add up. Um, in any case, uh, you know, we may as well also do our normal, um, modus operandi here and share with you the link if by any means you want to jump on and participate ask questions or point something out or or you know take things in a different direction you're more than welcome to because really we are literally today literally uh we are beginning with a uh, a blank slate this is where we begin from how can we begin from anywhere else right we're we're put yourself as best you can in a meditative state try to turn your mind off This is not an exercise in comparison and duality. There is nothing to compare. There is literally nothing. Whoops. We have to make that a little bigger for you. There we go. Actually, that's even better, right? We'll make ourselves even smaller. So you guys get try to get the full experience here. Um, it's there's nothing in fact you guys don't even have to see me and um just for the sake of this exercise for the sake of today uh let's see if we can oh perhaps we can't uh Yes, we can. There we go. We uh, hide it. Hopefully the logo up top doesn't bother you, but you know what? We can even hide that too, I think. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So that's as clean as we can make it. And uh, I'm down here. I might pop in every now and then <laughs> to make some comments. But let's begin at the beginning, shall we? We'll put the comments back up so you guys can uh, leave your comments and so on. But, uh, or we can do this too. Uh, let's, let's keep it big. Okay. So, nothing. So again, try to keep yourself in that meditative state and let's walk through in an experiential way 
Let's walk through in an experiential way where we can go from here. In a pure act of creation, where do we go from nothing? From a point, this is the zero point. Zero. Absolute nothing. So we're going we're to have to use some symbols along the way because, after all, we're, we are, we're trying to use the rational mind here as a tool, not as our master, but as our, as just as a tool. And we'll be using language and symbols as a tool. Not defining anything, but rather being defined by what we are walking through. So, you know, this, this nothingness, whoops, this nothingness is pretty clear, right? So, but in order to move forward, we have to make another symbol of that. So imagine that point as infinitely non-existent, but it's a point. And from that nothing, from that zero point, comes something. That's right, Kamal Benzuki, a zero-dimensional point. Now from that zero-dimensional point, which is nothing, there's only one place you can go. And that's something. That, that journey, that step, is what in logic and in pure mathematics is we call plus one. So now we have, we've gone from nothing, but now there is something. And we don't have to worry about what that something is. It's, it's something. That's all it is. Of, but is that what else is that something it's not just something there's something else to that something Can you, can you fathom what that is? What else is something? When all there is is nothing and something, what else can we say about that something? That something is also everything. It's all there is. If you have nothing and you go to something, yeah, we had some guesses here. Dimension? As it says, not something. No, actually, no, no. The not something is zero. That's where we started with, right? As Azel, we started with nothing. Nothing is not something. It's nothing. But when 
you have nothing and something together. That something, and so around that something, there's nothing else. There is only that one something. That something is also everything. But there's an issue, right? The issue is, why is this? That's a that's a uh, a radii plus one here is only a radius. This line is the uh, oh maybe we're, we'll. Let's get our, uh, what's better, a pen or a highlighter? Or, uh, okay, let's just use our laser pointer here. That's, okay, maybe that'll work. And then we won't mess up the slide. If we need to write on something, we, we will. But you notice here there's a problem. That something is all there is, but everything must be a continuum. And this dotted line, as a, as a radii, a radii can only define half of the continuum above zero because it's plus one. The continuum is incomplete. Everything everything so that something can't be everything. There's something missing. It is everything but that one point can't be everything that emerges from the zero point. Benjamin says, I think if I remember, the dot is the beginning and the I, uh, I might be wrong. Well, what we need to define a, uh, oh, okay. So, the something, the one thing, radiates out of nothing, i.e. it's a radius. If the one thing is the only thing, then something should equal everything, and everything is represented by a circle. But the equator line represents the zero line. Because we're talking about a dimensionality now. We've created one dimension. So in one dimension, that zero point is the equator line. Plus one can't be everything. Because it can't create the continuum as just a radius. To complete the circle, at some point, something must become something else. And something cannot equal uh, the only thing. And something can't equal everything. Everything can only be created by the inverse of something. Something cannot be everything without it's the inverse of that, what that something isn't. 
Now, this might seem really abstract to you and say, like, why, like, you know, even mathematically, this might not make sense to you. But think about it. You have to think of it, well, imagine, not think, imagine. Put yourself in the shoes of a creator here. We showed this as the zero point creating another point. And we called that point something. But, and we said that thing is everything. But in order to define what that something is, it has to be in relationship to something else. And that something else has to be its inverse. Nothing can't be something. So nothing is an eternal zero point. It's nothing. It's zero. It doesn't exist. It's non-existent in the continuum that we are creating. So in order to create, the something that we create <clears throat> must be the continuum itself. And that continuum is defined by what is and what it isn't because what is is defined by what it isn't you can't have something be unless there is something that is not being for it to exist against for it to balance against right you have this Immediately, this, this balance, this duality, immediately emerge. Mathematically, plus, if you create something called plus one in a radii, in a radius, then immediately, in the inverse direction, a negative one point is created. And that defines the diameter of the continuum, of the circle which is everything, because that continuum uh, represents everything. Now, we're not actually in two dimensions yet. We're not there yet. We, you, so this is not, again, keep your mind out of it. Simply work with the fact that all of this is taking place in a realm of pure archetypes pure abstraction you something cannot exist without its negative without its inverse also existing otherwise there's no continuum and without a continuum there's nothing for it to exist in another way to put it is in order for you to create <clears throat> something and something exists inside of everything and so everything and something can't be the same thing unless you're talking about the continuum itself and that's where we began when we were just dealing with a point we created something but that something was everything but as soon as you start going down this uh, rabbit hole 
automatically must unfold its inverse. It must. Plus one, negative one. And what does that mean exactly? Well, let's see what, let's see where this precipitous process of creation, where it takes us, where it has to take us. It has, we have, <clears throat> the, the way it, it has to be, it has to go. We have two equal opposing radii equaling one diameter. So now one thing is everything. Defined by um, three points. Well, we'll get to that. Everything exists diametrically in duality. Nothing exists outside of duality. We're dealing with one line here, plus one and negative one. Plus one and negative one define everything. And this is where the, we get the, uh, the expression uh, that in duality, every, in duality, things are, phenomena are diametrically opposed. Because as one thing radiates out of nothing in one direction, its inverse radiates in the opposite direction, diametrically opposed. And that what creates the two poles, the polarity, because that's the other thing that when you look at this, you have, you have two poles. The, we're, we're now talking about the origins of duality itself. Duality immediately emerges out of creation. It is, it is inconceivable that it not. Because everything can only exist in these, because we're talking about the fundamental foundations, the abstract foundations of all of reality. We have not even creating dimensions or anything else like that yet. There's no 2D, there's no 3D. This is pure abstraction. This is in the world of archetypes. The unformed essences of form. And so that's why we're using mathematics because it's the most abstract language that we have to work with. Except for, you know, even if you want to talk about vibration or, or you know, sound or anything like that, we're getting into more complex uh, structures that are reliant on fundamental base abstractions of mathematics, abstractions of number. So let's, um, people are jumping in here with comments. By the way, if, if I'm missing your comments, that's because the uh, I've had to orient the screens a certain way. So your comments are sort of off to the side now. But Benjamin says, uh, oh, sorry, Kamal Mizuki says, uh, from a William Burroughs spoken word poem, I enjoy. Consider the impasse of a one God universe. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. He can't go anywhere since he is already everywhere. He can't do anything since the act of doing presupposes opposition. His universe is irrevocably thermodynamic, having no friction by... Okay, and as Azil says, I thought not something isn't. That's right. But that's something that, not something is zero, not something isn't. That was where we started from, right? Nothing isn't. This is why the, the absolute, and this is, comes back to Kemal Manzuki's uh, quote here about the one God, his 
is a um, his universe presupposes opposition. There is no opposition. But without opposition, there is nothing. You can't have any creation. Not only that, you can't know yourself. Nothing, nothing cannot know nothing. How do you how does nothing know nothing? What is there to know? There is nothing to know. If you know nothing, you know nothing. So you have to know something. But to know something, how do you know something? Well, you can know it as something, but can it be everything? You also have to create everything. So this is what we're talking about. Remember, we're looking at this from the perspective of God. We're talking about when you create something, you have to create everything, and in everything is the inverse of something. Because something cannot be everything. Except when everything is a something, the something that it is, is everything. But the way that unfolds is in the following, in the in the abstraction that we just walked through. And this will become even more clear as we continue. Uh, all right, where are we? Okay. What we have here then are two points on a continuum. Remember, this continuum is just a line, right? Yes, it, it's a diameter, and we're using the diameter to understand, to comprehend what's what's taking place here. But that continuum is a line, and that so we can think of that one as positive infinity and that negative one as negative infinity. But the two points at plus one and negative one, those uh, in combination with the zero point makes uh, three points, but three points in total. But here it's the law of two. You have two points. And the problem with everything is that it is separate from the origin. Okay? The problem with everything is nothing is truly separate from everything. In our continuum here, in our model, there's a problem. We created something and the inverse of something in order to create everything. But the but the origin Nothing is separate from everything. And how can that be? Everything came from nothing. How can nothing be separate from everything? Remember, everything is the continuum of the circle. The infinite continuum is represented by the, the circle. But the circle and, the, and its origin are separate. They're not on the same continuum. The origin of everything cannot... Uh, the origin of everything cannot be separate from everything. That's an impossibility. Because everything emerged from nothing. So, we go back to our continuum here and recognize that each one of those radii can be separated. 
into a positive and a negative, each one of those radii can form the diameter of its own continuum. Now, in truth, we have positive infinity and negative infinity because we have a circle in the positive and we have another circle in the negative because this this top half is positive, right? This is plus this whole uh, top half is plus one and this whole bottom half is negative one. But to unite the continuum with the origin, we create an infinity in the positive and an infinity in the negative. And the result is the, uh, the two radii become two diameters and we get four radii in total. And the origin is united with everything. The matrix is valid and infinity is defined. And we note that each circle must obey the law of duality. So each circle is a small version of the large circle. It's, it's like a fractal. And in technical terms, it is a fraction. It's precisely half in terms of this single line, the continuum. So what we've done is we've essentially taken the, the, the big circle and we've twisted it to create the infinity symbol, what's known as the Holy Eight. And if you've ever wondered why it's called the Holy Eight, yeah, we, we look at it, we say, well, because it looks like a number eight. But the value of eight, why is it, why, did, why was this symbol chosen for the value of eight? Because you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight quadrants. And again, that will become more clear as we continue. But the, the symbol for eight and the symbol for infinity and the value of eight are intimately and intrinsically connected. Eight as a symbol was not arbitrarily chosen. It is a mathematical abstract truth. And you can see that here. You can simply count what the value of the symbol of eight is. So what we find then is that we have a positive infinity and negative infinity and their origin is a third point. We have the maximum and the minimum of the, the, the whole, but we also have, we have three points and we have three circles, positive, negative, and the union of positive and negative. Three points, three circles.
this then in the the requirement the necessity necessity is the mother of invention right oh kamal manzuki uh, is showing his mind blown in the um, in the necessity is the mother of invention we are god here we're not we're not we, we have to blank your mind right none of this came to us because we were thinking about it we literally started with a blank slide and all of this started pouring out of us and and if and you know what we were you know our mind was blown just like kamal manzuki is as we kept as as this kept just happening and going and just things kept unfolding but it's invention we all want to be inventing it here and now in this moment there's nothing that we're racing towards there's nothing that we're trying to get to there is nothing there's we started with nothing so there's nothing out there to reach to everything is invention put yourself in the in the in in the mindset of a child who doesn't know anything at this point god doesn't know anything he knows everything but nothing because everything that he knows is nothing he only knows himself and the universe is nothing so he knows nothing and and that might sound sacrilegious but it's so powerful because we're talking about abstract ob objective truth here this is not up for debate this is not up for for you know uh intellectualization this is pure self-evident experiential knowledge and we're walking through it together and we're doing this together here and now so we have the law of three emergent out of necessity, out of the necessity of having to have the continuum and its origin be connected. This is what emerges. So the mind here is going to want to argue that plus one and minus one equals zero. So that these two circles cancel themselves out, right? But that's in an additive, but in a multipli multiplicative, two times one equals two. And since zero is a valid point along the continuum, one plus two equals three. It's mathematically sound. You count those points. They're there. The mind can try to, yeah, but it's plus one and min, uh, plus one and minus one, and they cancel each other out. No, no. Look at them. There's, there's, there's a point here and a point here and a point here. There's three points. This is where multiplication in mathematics emerges, and we could step back to this point. This is where division emerges because we've divided the whole into two. And the fractal universe, because this is a these are fractions now. Mathematics itself is emerging in this process that we are undertaking here. So multiplication now has just emerged and just simple counting. 
Uh, Azazel says, so we exist because God uh, didn't know anything. Um, precisely. Precisely. God wanted to know itself. So this is the process that the universe undergoes. Now, well, he says, uh, and Benjamin says, it correlates the fall of Satan coming into matter creates uh, nothing pretty nothing pretty interesting. Um, we're not there yet, <laughs> Benjamin, but uh, it it's related, but what you're mentioning is is related, but you're you're leaping ahead, I think, uh, than where we are. Um, and Kamal Manzuki uh, says three possible states. Exactly, because you have positive and you have negative and then union of positive and negative. And that's when the, in an additive function, right? You say that that's, but there's, that's in an additive way, that's zero. But in a multiplicative way, it's three. So the law of three. Positive, negative, and union of positive and negative. Okay, let's... Uh... All right. Now, what's important to uh, express here or remind you that the mind wants to call this 2D because it's looking at this as a two-dimensional phenomenon, right? But we are simply using the circle to visualize the continuum between positive one and negative, uh, and negative one which passes through the zero point uh, on a one-dimensional line. So two equidistant radii create one diameter and the potential for all dimensions. The, at the moment, the universe is still one-dimensional. In fact, it's zero-dimensional. All of this is taking place in the great all-mind of God, right? So there's no dimensionality here yet. This is the, we are in the, Absolute. We are in the unformed essences of form. So all of this is taking place in pure abstraction. It's just for us, in order to visualize it, we use these symbols, these mathematical geometric symbols, <clears throat> to understand what in the all mind of God takes place in pure abstraction in the world of absolute. It's unformed essences of form. Yes, they're blueprints, but they don't take on any, you know, form. But they are the foundation of the forms which emerge and will we'll go there. Two opposed radii can define only the, the, the diameter of the circle, not its circumference, which is everything. <clears throat> Recall that to unfold the, uh, the, the law of three, we applied the law of two three times. That's another way to understand how the three emerges because we did the, <clears throat> the law of two was the first law of creation, the law of duality. And then we applied that two more times. And that's how we get to three, right? Because we have these three, uh, these three phenomena. We have infinity, we have positive infinity, and negative infinity. 
But what that means is in the whole, in the big circle here, which is mostly positive on top and mostly negative on top on the bottom, we have the opposite polarity present. So in the negative half, we have a positive. And in the positive half, we have a negative. Uh, let's see. Okay. So the positive and negative circles each have their own positive and negative poles along a one-dimensional axis. Since the nature of polarity duality is the opposite at the circumference, everything um, everything's uh, limit and motion ends. There's no motion here. <clears throat> but that relationship between the positive and negative, we can draw like this. And this is just for simplicity's sake. The positive wants to be with the positive and the negative wants to be with the negative. So we have this pull, this negative aspect. You see the, the size of it, right? It wants to draw in its likeness. And this positive aspect wants to draw in its likeness. But because that negative is contained inside of a positive, and this positive is contained inside of a negative, that forces or pushes the the our one dimensional continuum is pushed into two dimensions in an attempt to rectify this discrepancy this is basically the law of attraction or the law of gravitation there's no mass there's no matter this is simply the fact that like wants to be with like. Everything wants to reconcile and return to whence it came. But if it's contained within its opposite, which it can't cross because of the law of duality, because of the law of two, It'll create a pressure, it'll be create a push, a force, a motivation. And that motivation creates motion, momentum. Up until now, there was no movement. Nothing moved. We had, we had in a one-dimensional universe, nothing can move. Because positive and negative repel one another because they radiate outward from zero. 
So you have an infinite line and that that's it. You there, that's your that's the the limit of your uh, creation. But in order to make it everything and create the continuum, we had to go through the abstraction what we did and this is what we end up with these these opposing forces and like attracting like. And that pull means that on this side where it's mostly negative, the negative attraction, the pull, is pulling on its self. And the positive side here, the pull is pulling on its self. That pull creates in the two-dimensional space two more poles. Whereas here we had the positive uh, north and the negative south. Over here now, because of this, this attractive force pulling on itself, we have an east and a west pole. A positive and negative east-west pole in two dimensions. As these forces, uh, and, and it creates the, uh, the um, rotation. Again, so it's attraction is not a push, but it's a pull. Now we can draw these polarities and show this positive trapped, uh, this negative trapped inside the positive, and this positive trapped inside the negative, and this pull, this force, this attraction setting into motion, creating the two dimensions and the universe of duality in motion, and the law of three, positive and negative in union, creates motion. This is, this is the emergence of the Tao. This is how fundamental the Tao is as, as a symbol. And why it must be as it is, this is what it represents. And although, you know, Lao Tzu said the Tao that can be explained in, uh, the Tao that can be explained is not the eternal Tao. Yes, this is true. Because even our explanation here is, is grossly insufficient. But this is the explanation that the mind can grasp and understand and see as self-evident. Because we've stepped through it, we've walked through it. How we arrive here. The Tao is what sets the law of three and puts duality and creates and sets everything in motion, actually creates dimensionality because this is how one dimension becomes two dimensions through motion, through the law of attraction and through the desire to reconcile. Now this also is how we get the illusion that opposites attract. Opposites don't attract, opposites repel. But it is the sameness trapped within the opposites which are being attracted. But because they're trapped within the opposite, the pull is so strong that the opposite is dragged. 
kicking and screaming along with, and this is even in when if you read Walter Russell, uh, and we're jumping ahead of ourselves because we're going to get into just momentarily electricity. He talks about how um, in magnetism, uh, conventional science thinks that there's only a north and south pole. Walter Russell makes it clear there's also an east and west pole. What's unfolding here has its corollary, as above, so below. What we see here in the Tao is expressed in the fourth dimension, in electromagnetism. Magnetism, uh, electromagnetic fields have east-west poles. They have to have east-west poles. As you can see. Because you can't have th this relationship of north-south without east-west. It's impossible. But that's the problem of just, you know, observing things purely from a three-dimensional perspective and measuring things from, you know, as they do, you know, when you do like metal filings on a magnet and you see the shape of the electromagnetic field, you say, oh, well, you see north and south. Well, okay. Kamal Manzuki says, in sacred geometry in high school, we derive three from two with the vesica pieces, piscis, pieces. Uh, not sure what that is. Um, let me, uh, okay. But you see, here's the beauty, right? Here's the beauty of approaching it this way. <laughs> right? We don't even know what the vesica pieces is. And we're going to get to where that wants to go. But we're going to arrive there in a completely original way, or at least it was original to us. Because we don't know where the vesica pieces will lead you. We don't know where that methodology of arriving at three, because that's really a Venn diagram. You take one and two, and then you cross them over, and then you create three. But we have a suspicion that that methodology arose with a knowledge of the number three with the knowledge of the number three and trying to arrive at three from two. So how do we do that? Okay. The process that we undertook here today did not presuppose the existence of three. That's the difference. We three arose organically from one and two as we walk through it here, three arises as a matter of fact, as a matter of principle, as a matter of necessity, three arises. A Venn diagram presupposes the existence of three. 
and says, well, how do we get there? Oh, I know. We'll take one and two and we'll cross them over and we'll make three that way. But you see, that's an intellectualization. That's not experiential knowledge. Or someone, you know, takes two circles and crosses them over and counts one, two, three, and says, oh, hey, I created three. So, okay. But is that how God creates three? We're talking about, because remember, here we're talking about abstraction. We're talking about the, the, the world of Atsuluth. All of this has to emerge out of nothing. And here we create dimensionality itself. We created addition and multiplication and division itself. And we also create subtraction itself. Just math was never our strong suit. We never, it never stuck in here, mathematics the way it was taught. So, um, we are uh, we are coming at this or approaching this as not a math math person, right? Language is our strong suit, and in that and but our gift is our capacity to access self-evident experiential knowledge and. To experience is to know. And to experience nothing and emerging one from nothing and then two from nothing and everything. And how does that everything in one dimension becomes two, become two dimensions? Well, as we've, as we've done. But two dimensions is still only two dimensions. So where do we go from here? We have our north-south pole. And in the process of motion, of revolution, we create an east-west pole. If we return to our very basic diagrams of points, we have the law of four, the law of four and five emerge. Because in the process of that rotation, in the east-west pole, we now have a total of five points. And we have the four cardinal points, right? North, south, east, and west. And then the zero point, we, we, we count the points here, and we have five. But we can also count circles. One, two, three, four, five. Right? So now, again, in that we, we created motion based on attraction, based on the de desire to reconcile that which was separated. So duality is separation, and then so the opposite of that is reconciliation in the law of three, and that's what the Tao represents, right? Uh, affirmation, negation, and reconciliation, positive, negative, and neutral. And that's what sets the universe in motion, creates the second dimension, and now we have the cardinal points, and again, four and five emerge. And 
that obviously is the cross. <clears throat> now, if we rotate it again, halfway, we duplicate that cross, we multiply it by two. So we're applying the law of two to the second dimension. Duality, right? We're duplicating the, the, the law of two. We get four dimension, the fourth dimension. Eight poles. Whoops, sorry. Eight poles and nine points. and 10 digits. Nine points and 10 digits. That's base 10 mathematics and four dimensions, which we know from Kabbalah, this Fourth, the four dimensions is what's known as the foundation. But there's a problem with this. And the problem is we went from 2D, two dimensions, to four dimensions. to get our nine points and our 10 digits, base 10 mathematics, right? And our nine points, it's, that's by the way why the fourth dimension is the ninth sphere on the tree of life. But what, but what, happens to, what happened to the third dimension? We skipped over the third dimension, did we not? Ah, this is how we know that the third dimension is not and cannot be foundational. Kamal Manzuki says, you're going from two to four reminds me of simple harmonic motion, then going into the electromagnetic field, simple harmonic motion in magnetic field with an um, ortho orthogonal field in the electric. He says, I was wondering about the third, LOL. Well, exactly. This is how we know that the fourth dimension is foundational. It comes before. Nothing can happen until we have base 10 mathematics. The 10 digits, the one and zero. Uh, Orthogonal at right angles. Okay. Uh, so here's where here's where we need to go. If you recall, so what we've been doing is we've been applying. Um, okay, so we're going to get to this explanation. So here, so the question is, where's the third dimension in all this? Okay. So if you recall, 
what we've been doing is uh, taking one dimension and multiplying it by two. So you multiply one by two, two. So right here, two by one dimension equals 2D. And then to get to the next level, two times two dimensions equals 4D. So, but built into even one dimensions and two dimensions is the law of three. So in order to get the third dimension, Okay, we take three times one dimension. And that's so that's one, two, three lines, right? Three diameters. And then we get seven points, the XYZ axis. Now this is where things get potentially difficult to grasp when we're dealing with images and a two-dimensional image. If you can visualize the cube inside here, because we're now talking about three dimensions, right? We have an X and a Y and a Z axis. Okay, so if you can imagine, if you can visualize this cube, if you, you see where, well, if you want to call this this flower, these points are where a sphere inside of that cube would touch the the center interior sides of the six sides of that cube. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six. This is the sphere inside of a cube. And we can call this a shaded flower. We can call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> What's also important to note here is that from 4D, we have base 10 mathematics. If we subtract uh, 3 from 10, they subtract the third dimension from base 10 mathematics, we're left with seven. And that's the number we that we have here, right? That we're showing here. That's the organizational law of the universe. 10 minus three equals seven. Three, the creative law. So in one dimension, even though we had that line in one dimension, we had three points. So basically applying the law of three to the law of uh, one, we get three dimensions. And this is what's going to be important to understand is this. And this is why visualization is so important. You, you have to be able to try to visualize this cube now with a with this sphere inside of it because it's going to get messy in a minute. This is where it starts to get messy. And we'll try to walk you through this because it's. We take this three dimensional sphere, this inner flower,
I'll just start walking you through this. If you take 12 overlapping circles in perimeter, so we start 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And you say, well, why 12? Why are we taking that number? Because we're taking the fourth dimension, 4 times 3 is 12. Law of 3 applied to the law of 4. We get seven non-overlapping circles, 19 circles in total. One plus nine equals 10. Nine minus one equals eight. Also, well, these are seven times eight, 56. That's 11, 12, 13. Some of these are, I guess, more important, not important when I, we first did these. The special relationship between three, six, nine emerges. We count seven flowers in 2D, but in 3D, there are four spheres, each in two rows, plus one sphere in the center. So here we go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. In two dimensions, we're counting seven of these flowers, right? But in three dimensions, these are overlapping spheres, and these are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And in their heart is a ninth sphere. Remember what we said earlier about the ninth sphere on the tree of life of Kabbalah? The ninth sphere is the fourth dimension. The fourth dimension here being contained inside of a three-dimensional cube, but it's in its heart, in its center, within the foundation of that three-dimensional cube is the ninth sphere. And that ninth sphere is the fourth dimension, the foundation. That's the ninth sphere. But it's literally the ninth sphere because you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And in, there, in the heart of that, is the ninth sphere that emerges from a zero point because that's the zero point of the X, Y, Z axes. There's no denying it is self-evident, but you have to, but you have to look past the two dimensionality of this image and you have to be able to grasp it and visualize it in, in three dimensions. So again, that's two rows of four spheres stacked on top of each other. And this third sphere that is emergent when we do that, because remember, this is all abstraction, so we're not bound by any dimensionality here because this is all existing in the world of archetypes in the zero dimension. So the two-dimensional truth of it, the organizational law of the universe is we count seven flowers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's in accordance with the organizational law of the universe. But in three dimensions, there are nine spheres. And that special sphere in the middle is that the, uh, the foundation of that spheroidal uh, cube is the fourth dimension. We'll skip over some of this other stuff because it's 
it's um well we could uh, um Zazel says, it's a good thing that I have a habit of not thinking. Otherwise, this would, <laughs> this would have given me a headache. Um, yeah, yeah, precisely. So this, this uh, Kamal Manzuki uh, last, this ninth sphere, by the way, has an interesting phenomenon, right? It's surrounded by 12 circles, right? These 12 around the perimeter and has 12 petals, six radial and six cir circumferential. I don't even know if that's a word, but let's count them, right? Oh, um, you can, can I, uh, I can zoom, I can zoom. I know I can zoom. Okay, there we go. All right. So here, what we can do, oh, so I can't zoom and point at the same time. <laughs> All right, so we'll use this hand and count with the hand. So you see one, two, three, four, five, six, and one, two, three, four, five, six. You guys can see that, right? So that ninth sphere in the center is the only flower in this entire configuration that has 12 petals. This is important. This makes the ninth sphere here a very special sphere. It's surrounded by 12 petals. The, 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 this can't be said for any of the other ones, right? Because these ones, these ones don't have a complete uh, um, petals around their circumference. Only, only this sphere in the center has these, uh, has 12. Now 12, one plus two equals three, so that 12 is an important number, but, but as we will see in a moment, okay, this is very significant, this special circle. And we can say it has, um, this is, we call the, an the esoteric sphere because it's the one that's contained within in the heart and it only emerges within in the heart of that three-dimensional cube but it's special it has 12 petals it is the esoteric sphere within a cube of esoteric spheres because the circles the 12 circles around create this internal cube which then at, at its heart has this esoteric sphere so i know there's a there was a reason why we were focusing on this and we had to explain this because this is what happens when we make a sphere of esoteric spheres what we've done is we've we've um taken Uh, this configuration and we've now multiplied it out until we get this is uh, around the, the perimeter here I can't remember it's one, two, three, 
1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. That's 24 circles around the edge. So we've taken that 12, that what we previously had, we've, we've duplicated, we've multiplied it. And when we do so, again, we get a phenomenon of this sphere, but now, uh, this, sorry, this uh, cube of spheres. But now we're only looking at those spheres that are complete spheres that have 12 petals each, right? These esoteric spheres from the previous slide. And then when we isolate just those spheres, just those flowers, and we draw a circle around them like this, who can tell me what this shape is? You've seen this before. Everybody knows this. Kamal Manzuki says, from what I understand, 12 approximates the circle in a nice way you don't get from other nearby numbers. That's why there are 12 notes. Um, 12 approximates the, the circle. Well, it has to because uh, it has 1, 2, and 1 plus 2 equals 3, which are the three points that we showed from the beginning you need to define a circle. It's, 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 so it's natural that 12, the number 12 would perfectly, or would be the best number to describe a circle because it's digits actually define it in abstraction. So as above, so below. And Benjamin tells us here that we've just created the flower of life. Through the relationship of the fourth dimension, the foundational relationship of the fourth dimension to the third, we've created the flower of life. Which, as you know, within the flower of life, you can map on the tree of life of Kabbalah, and there are this is a foundational form or shape in Eastern mysticism and philosophy and esotericism. All we did was multiply 12 twice, but another way is we, multi we took the law of three, we put this relationship This was uh, at the, on the XYZ axis. And we said, what if we multiplied this across each of those three axes? And you, you multiply three by nine and get 27. To, um, so we isolate those circles, which are uh, true esoteric spheres, the laws of eight, nine, 11, 12, and 13, forming a, a cube of spheres, three rows, of nine spheres each. 
So whereas before we had two rows of uh, four spheres, we got nine total. But here we multiply out, we get three rows of nine spheres each. So three times nine. And the reason why it's three times nine is because that ninth sphere is the only sphere that had all 12 petals. So this is how we get 27. So out of that 27, we have, okay, so uh, 2 plus 7 is 9, 7 plus 9 is 16, 1 plus 6 is 7. So we have all these relationships between the law of 7, the law of 3, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of this gets reduced down to, again, the 3 and the uh, the 7, and 3 plus 7 is 10. So in other words, the organizational law of the universe and the creative law of the universe. Law of 3 and the law, and the law of 7. Put them together, the law of 10. 10 is, by the way, that 1 and 0, that point and that circle that we started with. The origin and everything. That's 10. Nothing and something. Nothing and something. And nothing and everything. That's what 10 is. So when you look now at that flower of life, you can see, right, the, there's a three-dimensional cube in there made up of these flowers. There's three rows of nine, three times nine, 27, and two plus seven is nine. There's one, two, three rows, again. So it's a cube. Who else saw this? Well, let's go back to that, our previous, so we go back to how this emerged, right? This emerged from this. So when we go back to this, who else saw this? Well, when we isolate 13 circles arranged in three rows of five along each of three axes and connect their origins, so 3 times 5 is 15, 1 plus 5 is 6, and 1 plus 3 is 4, 6 plus 4 is 10. Who can tell me what that is? Yeah, yeah, Benjamin. That's Metatron's cube. We were not trying to arrive at this. Kamal Manzuki says, yes, I feel it is important to note that all of this can be expressed with just one dimension, digitally to arbitrary uh, resolution and perfectly if continuously. Uh, can it though? It doesn't, it can be expressed in consciousness. And I suppose a computer can understand it in some form of linear equation. But that's just an expression. What you're seeing here is, is an expression, yes. But it is something that emerges from experience. Because these are actual phenomenon, right? That's 
um, these shapes, this all of sacred geometry exists in Metatron's cube that emerged from this, which we stepped through through this process of pure abstraction. Can it be expressed in some other way or, or, or uh, conceived in some other way? He says, I mean, as in represent the shapes, yes, not in the deeper sense. Oh, okay. Well, you can't represent any shape in one dimension. Shape, by definition, has to have at least two dimensions. Otherwise, there's no shape. Otherwise, you just have a line. So I'm not sure what... Um, Benjamin says, actually, uh, uh, these two-dimensional expressions are shadows of multiple dimensions. Yeah, exactly. And that's really what we're getting at here, right? The limitations of our ability to communicate or express. But the point is, is that the background abstraction of mathematics and the experience of going through this, these emerged for us. At no point did I say in uh, in the description or anything, come come join me on Sunday when we're going to create, we're going to create Metatron's cube out of nothing, or we're going to create the flower of life. I did not know this is where I was going to end up when I started this process, when I first was inspired to sit down and go and walk through this process. I, I, I did not know that this is where I was going to end up. I had no idea. It's just where we ended up. And it is, should be obvious that at least, like, that these things are not um, accidental or arbitrary. This means it's the person who first, first drew the flower of life, walked through this same process, and ended up here. And it means that whoever came up with Metatron's cube, now the Archangel Metatron, it's named after the Archangel Metatron. So did the Archangel Metatron give Metatron's cube to humanity? If so, is this a coincidence? It cannot be. It's, it's impossible. So, you know, we often say everything happens for a reason and self-evident experiential knowledge 
is knowledge which emerges organically from nothing. Where there was no knowledge before. Knowledge itself has to be created. The foundations of knowledge has to be created. The framework, the fabric of the universe. And this is why mathematics, even though I'm not a math person, but mathematics in the abstract sense underlie all of reality as we know it. And the laws of two and three and six and nine and seven and five, these have qualitative aspects to them, not just quantitative ones, but qualitative ones, which emerge when we walk through such a an experiential process as we've as we've just done and there is more that we can go although this is i've not fully uh um fleshed out some of this stuff so but we can get into things like the fractal universe the dimensional dimension so counting out the uh and then the the pillars of you know, the pillars of mercy and severity so how the tree of life relates uh, right the three pillars and we get to the 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 dimensionality so one two three four five six seven and and eight what we call that the lunar fifth dimension, because eight minus three, you subtract these three dimensions from eight and you get, and you're left with the lower fifth. And then of course the zero dimension, which is, you know, the, the first emanation that everything emanates from the, the absolute. You see harmonic um, overtones because all of the uh, the octaves in the notes are based on the law of seven. But I'm not a musician either. I know nothing about music. I know what the notes are. And I know there's seven notes and seven octaves. That's about it. That's about all I know. I'm not a music theorist or anything like that. Again, all of this just emerged. And it also relates to, <clears throat> so here, you know, the fourth dimension is foundational. And we can see how the fourth dimension is on this side of the equator. These are the supernal worlds. These are the infernal worlds. There is more that... Um, uh, we can go, but we're 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 gonna we're gonna leave it off at that. Um, Kamal Manzuki says, "Yes, it all checks out to my understanding of this stuff." Uh, we don't typically spend our time, um, you know, messing around 
too much with uh, numerology or sacred geometry or uh, because by and large, it's very interesting and it's an interesting abstraction and it can, it, it, it can yield some interesting results. We generally speaking, don't find it very useful or practical from the process of, of revolutionary psychology and working on oneself because sacred geometry and all these things, people can get lost in it. And I mean, lost intellectually. It can take a lot of our time and mental energy, even like Azazel said. Um, and Kamal Manzuki says, we did it, right? Um, it's like Azazel said earlier, he said, it's a good thing he didn't turn his mind on because his, 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 all of this would have given him a headache. And a lot of people, their eyes gloss over when they start looking at, you know, Kabbalistic uh, numerology and, and you know the other sciences the sciences of numbers and and um and then there's that you know the whole aspect of how in hebrew every letter has a numerical value and so in scripture the numerical values add up and then there's you know important meaning in there but in this particular case we were told to sit down and, and do this because we needed to be shown how all of this stuff, what its real foundation is and how it came into being. And I had certainly never come across anything like what we just walked through anywhere. And yeah, anything in math class or anybody else trying to explain stuff was always from this Western perspective. And it was always people already knowing where they needed to get to and contriving a way to get there. Whereas in this particular case, we were simply being guided from within. Now apply, now apply the law of three again. Now apply the law of two again. What you did once, now in order to, do, to get from, now this, there's no motion here yet. Then you got you to apply the law of two again. And then, the, and then so everything that you saw just emerged, just came organically from the previous step, the previous step. And then before we knew what we were, what we were doing, we didn't know what we were doing. But before we knew what was happening, there it was, the flower of life and Metatron's cube all of sacred geometry and all that the meta the uh the flower of life represents and contains but had anybody ever explained to you where the flower of life came from and how it emerged i had never seen that explanation i'd seen the flower of life a million times over but nobody could say where it came from just as nobody could explain where the Tao came from even Lao Tzu said the, the Tao that can be explained is not the real Tao. It's not the eternal Tao. And, and I recognize that. But the Tao emerges. That's why it's possible to be beyond the Tao in the space beyond the Tao is that space beyond duality. Is the space beyond creation. 
The space beyond creation is the doorway into the absolute. And that's why the Tao is a representation of the law of three, positive, negative, and union of positive and negative. That's why revolutionary psychology and sacred sexuality, white tantra, sexual alchemy is the doorway, is the key into the absolute. To reconcile, to achieve union and overcome all duality, to move beyond the Tao itself. Benjamin says, it looks like the three infernal worlds correspond to the three lower chakras, while the three supernal worlds correspond to the three upper chakras, with the heart chakra in the middle. That's that would be correct. That would be correct. What um, Benjamin is referring to is let me get the uh, slide back up for you. What Benjamin is referring to is oh look at that. Uh, where did you guys go? There you are. I got to move you both back over here. Present. Share screen. Share window. Okay. So, if we're, wait, we had, uh, okay, here's the okay, five, six, seven, and then eight, right? If you think of, yeah, like, but this comes back to what Kalmanzuki was saying about harmonics. And so you have this emanation, right? And it all emanates out from the heart. And then, but, but that's why you see the crown chakra uh, relates to Keter. That's the top of the, the head. That's the crown chakra. The, um, <clears throat> and then the, the root chakra, the Muladhara chakra is of course down here which, you know, obviously relates to, and in the background you have the Tao, right? And then the reconciliation of all of these, right? That's why we say the fourth dimension is the foundation, because that's in the center of everything. The four, and, the, and Malkut, fourth, the fourth dimension is the foundation. Where's my uh, laser pointer? Right? And then here we have the third dimension. Kamal Manzuki said, uh, says, uh, my interest, I'm going to put this back over here, my interest in this kind of thing is mostly down to signal processing, so a practical engineering viewpoint. 
Well, no, fair enough. I mean, we all have our reasons. We're all we're all drawn to study things uh, coming from our particular point of view or background or areas of interest or expertise and so on. We're all we all come to this knowledge and as seekers, we're all coming from different uh, different perspectives. So you can imagine it like you know spokes on a wheel. But all those spokes lead to one place. They must. Because in the circumference of the wheel, which represents the continuum, the infinite possibilities, the, there are many pathways to the hub. But there's only one destination, and that's the hub. So this is why... We don't spend a lot of time studying what other people and reading what other people write and studying what other people do. Our focus is on going right to the hub, going to the zero point, and listening to what emerges within us from beyond the Tao, from that zero point. And, and and bringing that into the world through our expression and sharing that with the world. And if it coincides with what other people have written, fine, great. But very often, it results in expressions or explanations which other people who, who are even in those fields don't know. They're grasping at answers. They're searching for answers, but they can't get there because they can't see the forest for the trees. We guarantee you that people in sacred geometry, people who study sacred geometry and Kamal Manzuki, perhaps you can attest to this or you can back this up. People who study sacred geometry, they know about Metatron's cube and they might even know the relationship between Metatron's cube and the flower of life. And the, there's another expression. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, remember, I can't remember what they call it. Um, for, uh, for this phenomenon, uh, hang on a second. Where's our uh, slide sorter here? Uh, okay. Okay, so this is this is the flower of life, but this also has uh, this is the flower of life, but this also has a name. And we we we're not sure um, we can't remember what they call this, but that's the flower of life, and this again also has a name, and that and that how it's this larger phenomenon, not just the flower of life, but this larger phenomenon that is required to, to uh, derive Metatron's cube. Now, people who study sacred geometry, they understand this, and they can understand this relationship. They can understand how uh, the relationship between these two things, but I don't know how many people in sacred geometry know how to derive these from nothing, from zero as we did.
today. They may, they may, they may be able to, but we've never seen it. And we've never seen anybody talking about sacred geometry. Explain it. Not like this, not like we, we have today, because we didn't explain it. Together we walked through it, we stepped through it, we experienced it. That's the difference. Because far too many people studying sacred geometry, they study it intellectually with the mind. As best as we can, and, and, and the more we give this presentation, the more we conduct this exercise, the better we will be at creating an experience of it and, and, and trying to, you know, turn it into a play, turn it into a drama. It would be really cool if we could, um, yeah, Kamal Manzuki says, yeah, to Metatron's cube from a blank page is a hell of a run. Well, it would be, it might be an interesting, uh, but again, the problem with it is approaching it from the perspective of, okay, all right, I've got a blank page. I've got to arrive at Metatron's cube. You can't do it that way because that's not experiential. That's not organic. Whatever you come up with, you do not know if it is true or not, you don't know if it, that's actually how Metatron's cube emerges from nothing because your solution will be contrived because you, you know what you're trying to arrive at. This is why scientific theory, the scientific method is fundamentally flawed. It is fundamentally flawed because it theorizes on what truth is and that it conspires and contrives to arrive at a solution that that leads leads them to to uh, confirm the theory. And yes, you know, people will argue, no, 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 because uh, people disprove theories all the time. But when it's your theory, a theory that you came up with. you have this innate subjective desire to validate your theory. You want your theory to be correct. So you will see it's called confirmation bias. And this is how it is, for example, that we end up with things like Darwin's origin of species, the theory of evolution according to Darwin. Because he imagined how things work. And then, of course, he saw, he looked in nature and he took all the examples that confirmed his theory. And to this day, to this day, uh, paleoanthropologists and paleobiologists, when presented with evidence, hard evidence, which contradicts and refutes the origin of species by natural selection, and evolution of man and 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 so on when they when when they are presented with for example the skeleton the skeletal remains of giants what do they do 
They dismiss it all. It's pseudoscience. It's a hoax. It's this. It's that. It's it's they 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 refuse to look at the evidence. Why? Because of their cognitive dissonance. Because of their fear that they might be wrong, that their theories and their beliefs and their dogmas might be incorrect. And that all of the time and 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 energy and years studying and and supporting and shoring up the evidence confirming their theories to be correct, all of that will be wiped away and will be for nothing and will be revealed for what it is. The emperor has no clothes. Now, I'll be honest with you, right? I didn't look at this, you know, shape on the left, this, uh, this, this uh, phenomenon. On the left here, um, I didn't look at this and go, oh, I know what I need to do. I need to uh, connect these lines and these lines and these lines and these lines and these lines. And these lines and these. I didn't do that. I just looked at this and saw this shape. And when I saw this shape, I said, you know what? I've seen this before. And sure enough, when I looked on the internet and I found these circles in this orientation, there was Metatron's cube. But I didn't construct Metatron's cube from connecting the dots, the origins of these one, two, three, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 circles. I didn't do that. I just recognized that shape and said, this is significant. And sure enough, I found this. I didn't even draw this. This is a GIF I pulled from the internet. But I didn't set out to uh, arrive at any of this. It just emerged organically through the process. And this, for lack of a better expression, is how pure science works, pure mathematics, and pure knowing Benjamin says, it has to give a symbolic spiritual and physical story, that's for sure. When we approach anything, many, many masters have said the benefit of having a childlike mind. What's the benefit of having a childlike mind? It's 
It's blank. It's empty. It's a sponge. It absorbs. It sees. Have you ever seen, have you ever paid attention to how an infant sees the world? Uh, mouth, mouth ag- agape. Everything they look at, they're seeing it for the first time. Everything is a miracle. Everything is extraordinary. And they look at everything with this intensity of pure absorption, of pure awareness, of pure consciousness. Because their they're, they're little brains aren't chock full of all this garbage yet. And all these beliefs and all this conditioning. So they're 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 an empty cup. So you want to know God's thoughts? He has no thoughts. God God knows. How does he know? Through experience. How does he experience? Through, if nothing else, for lack of a better word, through virtualization. In the world of Atsaluth, what we like, what we attempted to mimic here today, it's like modeling, it's like experimenting. It's like the same way engineers will make a mock up or a model or they will use computers to create a computer simulation. We don't know how it's going to work. We don't know what it's going to do. So let's, let's consciously use our conscious imagination and imagine what it's going to do, how it's going to behave, what's going to happen. Or where it needs to go, or what what it needs to be, what it needs to be. Well, how is the only way it'll work? That's the extraordinary aspect of what we did today, is that at no point did we say, "I wonder, I wonder if we do this, or I wonder if we do that, or maybe we should do this, or maybe we should do that." It never came into it. Never came into question. Because everything flowed from the next thing, more or less. And um, necessity is the mother of invention. The universe is not in motion. How do we get in motion? Oh, the law of duality is the law of two, the law of three. Division, multiplication, addition. All these basic fundamental things emerged and then they created the dynamic and then boom, the Tao emerges. The, the dynamic of the Tao, the dynamic of the universe in motion, duality in motion. And this is what Lao, Lao Tzu Tung explains in the Tao when he explains how what's good one moment is bad the next because these things flip constantly, right? Kamal Manzuki says, yeah, I was going to say a process of discovery seems distinct 
um, what you were describing as working backwards. One is causal. Uh, one is a one is causal. One is a causal. Yeah, and now that's not to say that working backwards doesn't have a doesn't have its purpose and can't be practical and functional. And yeah, of course it can, and it has its <laughs> excuse me, it has its practical uses. But those, so for example, it took us uh, just under an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to get from nothing to the flower of life and Metatron's cube. And sure, we can call that the foundation of all geometry, et cetera, et cetera, and, and you know so many other things. But how do you go from nothing to conceiving of and visualizing and arriving at uh, DNA? Or how about the cell or the heart or the organ or an organism or the human being? We don't have that capacity. We don't have the capacity to, so for example, when medicine looks at the appendix and says the appendix is useless, it doesn't do anything. It can be, it can be removed. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we just can't observe or see, identify what the appendix does. But arriving at that truth from a zero point is not practical, right? Because you're not going to you're not going to undertake creation from nothing to the human appendix. That's an enormous undertaking. That's really you have to be a cosmo creator to be able to do that. And it's really not practical. So really working backwards is really the only way you can do so. So for example, when, when that, uh, uh, we, we're not sure if we're going to get, if we get uh, dinged by saying COVID these days or not, but when the, when the virus of unknown origin, uh, struck and the pandemics was just first beginning, we went into meditation. And we asked to be shown what, what, what is this all about really? And we were, but in that instance, it was not a process of nothing and developing into, into, you know, the virus. What we were shown is what quote viruses really are and what they are not. And what we were shown, what they do in their function of intracellular communication and, and quarantining of hazardous uh, uh, DNA fragments and toxic materials um, inside the body and to uh, the expulsion of that material. So the quarantining, the locking down of that uh, material in molecularly distinct and unique envelopes, protein envelopes 
which can then be locked down with antibodies so they become inert and they can't interact with other cells so that they can be um, expelled from the body through things like sweat and mucus. We were shown all this and then, and then the next day, but without any names being put to any of this, by the way, just shown visually like we were in some three-dimensional uh, uh, simulation, some three-dimensional graphic representation. And then the next day we went on the internet and we, we typed into Google what we saw and up came this, these scientific papers talking about exosomes. We had never heard the word exosome before. We had never studied exosome before. Nobody in biology ever even informed us that these bodies called exosomes even exist or what their function was. But it turned out, turns out science knows about them. And not only that, the paper we found from John Hopkins University was explaining that how at the best of times, virologists can't tell the difference between exosomes and viruses. They're that similar. They're that similar. Well, they're that similar because they're the same thing. There's no such thing as viruses. And viral theory is 100% bogus, bunk, BS. There are no viruses. There are no, there is no such thing as viral contagion. We were shown that. But that was a process of working backwards from what we wanted to analyze. We asked to be shown, there's this anomaly show us what it really is all about. So we were given a limited kind of snapshot viewpoint of what we needed to know. That's what was shown to us. So, but again, it was an experiential thing. There was no intellectualization about it. There was no theory. There was no thinking it out or figuring it out. It was just being shown and being shown in a way that was in meditation was like a three-dimensional experience. It was like being shrunk down like in the Ant-Man movie or whatever. And I'm, I was actually, you know, surrounded by cells and I was observing these exosomes and, 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 you know, DNA being damaged. And, and, and it was just, again, it wasn't being spoken to me. It wasn't being explained. It was just being in that space of knowing where you go, ah, okay. Oh, and it has to, you know, we have to, that's damaged, that's dangerous. These are, these are intracellular um, particles now, these uh, volatile particles, because you don't want, these are, these are free radicals, but intracellular free radicals. So in the cell interior, when there are free radicals, those are very, very, very dangerous. Because if you have miscellaneous bits of DNA floating around, like that, those are the keys of life. They can they can generate proteins bits of fragments of dna can generate new proteins and who knows what those proteins are going to do i think it's very it's this is volatile dangerous material that the building blocks of life but you don't know like the properly sequenced and complete strands of dna when everything's organized and structured and being done in order then they can generate practical, usable, beneficial proteins. But damaged strands of DNA, what are they going to produce? What kind of proteins are they going to produce? Right? We don't know. And the cell 
doesn't want to find out because it could be very toxic, very damaging, deadly, in fact, or uh, cancerous, all sorts of uh, um, problems. So it envelops those free, those uh, damaged bits of protein or toxic substances inside the cell, envelops them and shuttles them out of the cell. And then the immune system identifies what's inside because that's that exosome communicates that because of its unique molecular signature of the exosome wall. And then the immune system identifies what that is and then uh, generates antibodies to lock down. So that exosome becomes inert. And then the immune system knows that if it ever encounters that particular type of material, um, these antibodies exist in the body so that when uh, that type of damage occurs again or that type of toxicity occurs, then as the cells produce exosomes to, to expel the toxicity or the damaged DNA or whatever, then the antibodies exist to lock them down and quarantine them uh, already so they're already in abundance in the body. That's why exosomes create antibodies that so-called create immunity to viruses. What's well, not immunity to viruses, it's defenses against uh, environmental toxicity. So again, but what's working backwards from a phenomenon to arrive at what its function is. So perhaps someday in the, in the future, we'll go into meditation and we'll meditate on the, uh, on the appendix. Say, so show us what the appendix is really for, and perhaps we'll be given the same answer. Who knows? I can't guarantee anything, but I could we can certainly do that as an experiment. <clears throat> One of the uh, things that we can perhaps take away from today is that on Two things. Number one is everything that we did in today's experiment, even though we were using a two-dimensional plane and we were trying to, you know, visualize in three dimensions and so on, really the visualization, if we did, we did it internally. Uh, all of this is the type of abstraction which takes place in the world of abs absolute, in the world of archetypes the unmanifested essences of form, or the unformed essences of form. And so that's the first level of creation. That's the level on which anything that gets created in the universe exists first in these types of levels of, of, of existence. Uh, what comes to mind is that loading program that they use in the matrix in the first film remember when uh neo first takes the red pill and he or he, and he awakens in that white space and it's just him and morpheus and they're all surrounded by white and he says this is our our construct the loading program or, or whatever so that's like what atsaluth is and it's very subtle, obviously. There's no dimensionality to it. There's no physicality to it in, every, in any way, shape, or form. 
It's formlessness. We're talking about essences here. And it's even our experience of it, we can only approximate it because we're in our consciousness. But there is an experience of Atsaluth which is beyond even consciousness. If you can even imagine that, uh, conceive of that, that's... But remember that there's a space even beyond the Tao, even beyond duality. And if everything we did today happened beyond consciousness and what was formed was duality itself, then that means real knowledge is beyond even duality. And to be, on, to be beyond duality means to know things in and of themselves without comparison and without contrast. So thinking uh, doesn't come into play and comparison and contrast doesn't come into play knowing the thing in itself this is why the holy the name of god is aheye asher aheye i am that i am god doesn't say i am not this and i am this not that that's the mind that's duality that's thinking knowing things in and of themselves through an experience just that the connecting to to the thing in itself that's gnosis. That's that's that. And to know oneself is to know the universe and the gods. To know oneself that way. That is so beyond. That is so beyond the rea the the capacity of AI. It'll never get there. It's impossible. It's an absolute impossibility. It's a mathematical impossibility. AI can never function in that way it can never achieve that level at that state it can never even achieve consciousness kamal manzuki says this is what they call in my circles pure alpha what you were just talking about i suppose it is that's one way to put it except that it's not It's pure alpha, right? The uh, the inference there is that it is pure alpha, meaning not yet omega. Especially when you were uh, uh, spitting about viruses, especially. It's pure alpha. It's not omega. <laughs> But the irony is, is that, that, you know, alpha point, right? The irony is that every point along the continuum is its own zero point. Every point in the universe is its own zero point. It's the only way to actually comprehend the nature of reality. 
the omnipotent, omnipresent nature of the absolute is that every point in manifested reality is the zero point, and it's the same zero point. If you meditate on that, then everything we did today with the flowers of life and those esoteric spheres and everything else and Metatron's cube and so on and so forth, and you notice how everything always connects through that origin. But that means that that point is also within you. It's in all of us. It's called the noose atom, the atom noose, the we atom, if you want to translate it into English. <clears throat> and it, yes, as, and as uh, uh, Benjamin said, it's, it's in our heart. All right. So we promised you not a four-hour uh, talk today because we're feeling a little bit burnt out. We think we're going to take the rest of the day off try to get some fresh air and hopefully we'll have energy to uh, go at the book again tomorrow. So, and hopefully that project will continue. Uh, we're into over 300 pages now and we're, we're running into a little bit of scope creep. So um, we're actually, things are expanding and we're giving ourselves more work to do. And that's a little problematic given the deadline that we gave ourselves. So, uh, but we'll see how things go. Hopefully, uh, things will progress. Does anyone have any uh, questions or comments before we call it a day? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Where, where does that come from? Oh, yes, at weddings. Does anybody have anything to, uh, anybody, uh, <laughs> disagree with this wedding? Kamal Manzuki says, uh, I'm good for this week. All right. Anyone else have any, uh, well, thank you for uh, being here, Kamal Manzuki, and thank you for your, your sharing and uh, participation as always. You have good input on our, uh, especially when you do stuff like this. Kamal Manzuki says, I mean, we only built the universe and all. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin says, no, uh, was a good time for me. Yeah, no, 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 was a good time for me. Okay. Um, we hope at least now when you see the flower of life, when you see Metatron's cube, when you see sacred geometry, when you see things like the law of three, the law of seven, the cardinal points, the cross, the Tao, you can say to yourself, I know where that comes from. I know, I know why that, why that's so important. I know why that's so foundational and how that emerges from nothing. That's, that's, it's, you know, it's not a life changing thing by any means, but it's something, you know, it's, it's something. It's a little extra little nugget that you can put in your pocket and take with you now and say, you know, we, I know how to get there. I know how to, I know how to create numbers from nothing. And I know how to create mathematics from nothing and geometry from nothing. And that little attunement 
in the in your consciousness let that sink in let that permeate let that you know spread benjamin says thank you for today's daily bread yeah no you're more than welcome Kamal Manzuki says, it is one of the great pleasures of life to deeply embody such understandings. Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's like what Benjamin said here, the daily bread. I call experiences like this little breadcrumbs. And each breadcrumb is another little gift that is given to us on our, on our path that's leading us out of the dark wood and into the light. But each breadcrumb, if we recognize it as a breadcrumb, as Benjamin's does here, as the daily bread, and each breadcrumb, when we, when we ingest it consciously, and we digest it consciously, and we recognize it for what it is, this is mana from heaven. You can imagine our experience of it. Like when, when at the, you know, earlier... When Kamal Manzuki gave us a little, um, uh, where where the heck was it? Right, right here, the little mind blown emoji. Well, you can imagine, you know, what I felt like as I was sitting in front of the computer doing all of this for the first time and being guided. Do this now, and then and now we got to get to two, and we got to get to, and, and now and now, you know, from some from nothing. We can only do something, but then that something is not everything and blah, 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 not everything that we walk through. But for the first time going through it, it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, it was just like coming, coming. And it was just like, but then knowing and then and then having it all come together at the end with the flower of life and Metatron's cube and going like that was when my mind was completely blown. But then recognizing that it was mana from heaven. It was a gift. It was, as Benjamin says, it was. Those little breadcrumbs, those are our daily bread. And we recognize that. We give thanks to that. We appreciate that. And we live for that. And when we are in that place and living from that place, and that's what we live for, then every single breadcrumb becomes like a feast. It's like, it's, it's, it's a kind of nourishment that you could spend all day reading a 500-page book about sacred geometry, or you could watch eight hours of, uh, of uh, you know, Randall Carlson talking about sacred geometry, but you still wouldn't have what you what you have now. That that this that little drop of manna from heaven, which 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 is conscious knowledge, not intellectualization. Not somebody explaining something to you intellectually so you understand it in the mind, but having walked through it, stepped through it experientially and embodying it now, as Kamal Manzuki says here, to deeply embody such understanding. In other words, to comprehend it consciously, to have a conscious comprehension and to be given an experience or allowed to participate in an experience that creates that comprehension that's what no intellectual lecture no book no anything can duplicate and can give you only experiential knowledge that's what we seek that's the mana from heaven and benjamin says i agree very much so about the daily bread yeah and these breadcrumbs are left for us by our divine mother 
And then when we get them, we eat them, and it's like this, it's 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 literally that's what they called manna from heaven. It's food for the soul, it's food for the consciousness, it's food for our being, it's nourishing our being. It's the nourishment that our that our human soul needs that our consciousness needs to awaken to grow to develop in our quest to become living gods in our quest to become enlightened beings self-realized masters we have to nourish that we have to we have to exercise our solar bodies we have to nourish our solar bodies we have to create our solar bodies and for that we need metaphysical nourishment that's the mana from heaven kamal manzuki says for me the counsel of the importance of direct experiential knowledge was game changing yeah that is game changing for all of us when we come to that realization because nothing can uh because anything that you just take in through the mind it just stays at the level of the mind, right? To really embody something, you, you have to... It's like we've said, I don't know how many times we've used these kinds of examples. Like, can you look at an article in National Geographic about the Grand Canyon and know what it's like to be there? Can you study... You know, a thousand books on surgery and know what it's like to perform an operation? Or can you, you can, can you learn how to drive a car or fly a plane or play the piano just by reading books? The answer is no, you can't. And isn't it ironic? That we have the world is populated by literally millions of so-called experts who have never actually done what they claim to be an expert in. They have zero experiential knowledge. You know that there are pediatric psychiatrists and, and, uh, and uh, child psychologists who don't have children? <laughs> just, just imagine, right? There's, there's an entire uh, generation, two generations now that have been raised according to the experts on how to raise children, and many of those experts wrote books on child psychology. And child rearing, and how to uh, and how to uh, uh, raise children, and they don't have children, and they've never raised children. Yeah, there's many, many, many such cases. You know, it's funny because yesterday we were so completely, just so completely uh, uh, being unproductive. You know what came on television was um, the Hunt for Red October, and uh, it's it's uh, it's just such a fantastic escape film but you know that jack ryan in that film he works for the cia and he writes books for the cia on naval warfare and strategy 
And and there's that brilliant classic moment in the film when Sean Connery's character, uh, Captain Ramius, sits him down in the uh, in the chair, and they're they're fighting the other uh, the Russian sub, the Alpha, and um, and and Sean Connery orders Jack Ryan to steer the Red October in the path of the uh, torpedo. And the American uh, captain is losing his mind. He's saying, what, what are you, you're turning into that torpedo? And Sean Connery goes, yes. And then while they're waiting for the torpedo to essentially hit them, Sean Connery casually says to Jack Ryan, what books? What books have you written for the CIA? Uh, and he goes, uh, uh, such and such about Admiral Palsy on naval strategy. And Sean Connery goes, oh, I've read these books. Ugh. Your conclusions were all wrong, Ryan. Palsy acted stupidly. <laughs> and it's such a brilliant moment. It's such a brilliant moment because it's a it's the takedown of the intellectual it's to take the central intelligence agency. You know, there's a there's a uh, there's a contradiction in terms. That's another great line from the movie. And again, it comes from a sub captain. This time from uh, Scott Glenn's character, the American sub captain. Central intelligence agency. There's a contradiction in terms. It's it's a it's a great it's a great film that um, in a very you know, limited way, um, it champions experience and wisdom and the wisdom of age and and the knowledge that comes from a lifetime of experience and the confidence that comes with that, but also the conscience that one develops through gnosis, through 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 experiential knowledge. Because um, Sean Connery's character, and that's why it's one of the greatest uh, castings in modern cinema, right? Sean Connery is Captain Ramius. I mean, it's just, you know, he just commands that role. He was born to play that role. And he just carries himself with that confidence with that knowledge is I have the experience. Um, anyway, it's just serendipitous that 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 film was on yesterday because it's and the, you know what they'll never make another movie like that. They'll never make another movie like that. The only well, actually, Top Gun Maverick. Maybe is an exception to that rule. Ah, oh, you know what? Maybe uh, another exception to that rule was uh, 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 the Pope's Exorcist. So perhaps we're being too. Uh, uh, those movies are few and far between. The ones that really honor and respect and champion uh, the wisdom of experience and and the the power of experience and the um, so on. Top Gun Maverick, of course, Maverick shows them how to do the run. None of the young hot shot pilots can do it. But then Maverick goes and he does it and he shows them it can be done. And so we're going off on a, on a bit of a rant here, but uh, this comes back to that um, 
comment Cal Manzuki said about the council of the importance of direct experiential knowledge. Um, this is how we can see how humanity has gone off the rails. Because universities do not teach experiential knowledge. And the, the tradition of apprenticeship is, is all but dead, except for a few areas where it survives. And in those areas where people begrudgingly accept that people have to have experience, we have computer simulations and, comp and flight simulators and all kinds of other things to, 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 to give them so-called um, uh, in-flight training and, and so on and so forth. And they have like robotic surgery uh, simulators and all kinds of stuff, right, to try to simulate things and give people experiential knowledge. So in many places, people begrudgingly accept that that's important. But in the humanities and the arts and the in many of the sciences and and many it's it's like it's completely ignored and brushed under the carpet because this work this humanity worships intellect and belief and it's it's idolatry is what it is that's what the mind is the rational mind is a false god it's a false idol and worshiping intellect and bowing down and devoting oneself to rationalism and intellectualism is worshiping a false god. And if you want to be really brutally honest about it, it's worshiping Satan. Because the rational mind is under the control of our egos. But it's worshiping mechanicity, and it's worshiping duality, and it's worshiping illusion. All right. Any more uh, comments or questions before we call it a day? Because uh, <laughs> a great tool, a, a great tool, a pitiful master. Yes. Indeed. Yes. That's right. That's what the rational mind is. All right. If no one has anything else to uh, to add or to say or to share or to ask, uh, we're going to uh, thank you all once again for joining us today. We hope that we'll see you again next week. We hope you have a wonderful week. We hope you have a productive week. Um, we hope we have a productive week. <laughs> And we'll report in with you guys next week and hopefully we'll let you know that uh, things are on the up and up and we just had a little dip this weekend or, or what have you. So all the best. Take care. Uh, thank you for being with us again, as always. And um, we hope you learned something and we hope you can take this experience with you into the future, <clears throat> to your meditations and into your explorations. Uh, into other phenomena, and that that this uh, experience has attuned you, your mind, your consciousness 
and to have an attitude of, of, yeah, can I approach this like a child? Can I approach this with a blank mind and allow the truth of it to emerge organically? That's, um, inshallah, come on, inshallah, Mugaboo 22 says, thanks, Atlas. All right. Thank you all so very, very much. Uh, we'll hopefully see you again next week. And as always, inverential peace. Take care, everyone.